Shalom. I hope that everyone had a meaningful fast. I'm Yael Ziegler, and it is appropriate that today, in this beginning of this period of consolation, the period in which we mark the reading of the Shiva Denachemta, the seven prophecies of consolation, which we read on Shabbat, um, it is appropriate that we discuss today, instead of the rather depressing topic of Megillat Echa, we discuss Chazal's uh, approach to Megillat Echa, their reading of Megillat Echa. And so today's study is going to be a study primarily of the Midrash Echa Rabbah, which is the Midrash Rabbah on the book of Echa. We know that we have ten Midrashe Rabbah, one on every book of Chumash, and one on each of the Megillot. Now, really, these ten books are uh, not related to one another at all, not in terms of chronology, not in terms of language, uh, not in terms of who and when the book was edited. Um, Bereshit Rabbah, for example, is a very early book of Midrash. Bemidbar Rabbah is a very late book of Midrash. Echa Rabbah is considered to be a relatively early book, while it's very difficult to date with certainty the editing of any Midrashic book, uh, the the most common approach is that, the common scholarly consensus is that Midrash Echa Rabbah was edited somewhere around the 5th century CE. That makes it a, a, a very early book of the Midrash. Um, and the question is, is why this was such an early book? Well, the assumption is, is that if this book was written, edited, and sealed so early, it means that there was a tremendous amount of material that existed on the book of Echa. And this material somehow, very early on, became uh, enough material, sufficient material for a book, and it was apparently important also to complete this material at some point. Um, now, the the reason why Echaraba was completed at such an early stage seems to be because it's a very important book for Chazal. Remember, Echa is a book that deals with the Chorban. It describes the destruction. More importantly, it describes the theological approach to the suffering or the uh, the experience of the suffering of religious man. Um, Chazal were dealing with their own Chorban. They were grappling with the second Chorban. The first Chorban, the Chorban of Bayat Rishon, happened in 586 BCE. The second Chorban happened in 70 CE. And Chazal were, at the time that they were reading uh, Megillat Echan, that they were writing the Drashot, the Midrashim of Echaraba, were grappling with their own Chorban and in in fact, they were using the text of Echa in order to respond to their own experience of destruction, to their own experience of suffering. Reading the book of Echa and interpreting it seems to have been particularly important for Chazal because uh, at the same time that they're grappling with their own Chorban, they have no more prophecy. They have no more word of God. They're trying to provide some kind of comfort, some kind of rehabilitation for their constituents, but without any direct communication from God. Of course, we know that Nivuah sees during the period of the Second Temple. Our last Nevi'im, according to Chazal, our last prophets were Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And so by the time the Second Temple is destroyed, there is no more prophecy from God. Um, and in an attempt to try somehow to receive some kind of divine communication, uh, Chazal, in general, turned to the texts. If we can make the texts 
speak, if we can make the Tanakh somehow be meaningful and relevant to our uh, particular situation, then um, it's almost as though we are receiving divine communication from God. And so Chazal view Migilat Echa as a way to somehow offer some kind of divine message of of consolation, of hope, of rehabilitation to Am Yisrael at this time. There's only one problem, and that problem is that Echa does not offer any messages of uh, hope or rehabilitation or consolation. And so Chazal somehow have to have to do something extraordinary here. They have to make the texts speak and to make them say something which they in fact don't say. And this is really the uh, monumental task that lies before Chazal at this time. And this is what makes Midrash Echarabat such an astounding book, such a powerful book, uh, such a profound testimony to Chazal's creativity and perhaps more importantly, their willingness to be creative in order to offer their constituents what they feel that their constituents need. I think that Midrash Echaraba is a tremendous indication of Chazal's greatness and that's one of the things I want to show you. Now, uh, why Chazal can do this? Well, um, uh, there are there are two things that I want to say about why Chazal can do what they do in Echaraba. The first thing that I want to say, I'm going to draw directly from a Midrash in Echaraba itself. This is a Midrash in the second chapter. It's Echaraba chapter 2, Midrash 4. And this Midrash describes Rabbi Yochanan explaining a pasuk in chapter 2, Bila Hashem Velo Chamal. And the Midrash tells us, Rabbi Yochanan would darshan this pasuk 60 different ways. He had 60 ways of explaining this pasuk. And the Midrash goes on and says, Rabbi, that's Rabbi Yudah Nasi, could explain this pasuk only 24 ways. And the Midrash asks a, a question. Rabbi was in a, previ- in a generation before Rabbi Yochanan, and Rabbi was considered to be a greater rabbinic figure than Rabbi Yochanan. He, of course, also is earlier than Rabbi Yochanan, the editor of the, Mish- of the Mishnah. And so the Midrash asks, Vilad Rabbi Yochanan Yatir al-Rebi? Could it be that Rabbi Yochanan is greater than Rabbi? I mean, he could explain this pasuk in 60 ways, and Rabbi could only do it in 24. And the Midrash goes on and he says as follows, Ela Rabbi he, because Rebbe was closer in time to the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, he would remember it as he was explaining the Psukim, as he was darshaning the Psukim, he would remember it and he would continue the drasha, but then he would stop to cry and only then he would be able to comfort himself and to go on. The principle that is uh, described here by this Midrash is that the farther away that we are from the destruction, the more ability we have to regard it objectively, to treat it in a, a less emotional manner. Now, keep in mind, Rebbe died in 223 CE. This is already a good 150 years after the Chorban, after the destruction. So we're not talking about somebody who lived during the destruction and who experienced firsthand the suffering of the destruction. But even Rebbe 
who was closer in time to the Chorban, uh, was, was more influenced by the emotional impact of the Chorban than Rabbi Yochanan, who lived a generation after him. So here the idea is, is that the difference, or one of the main differences between Midrash Echa Rabbah and Migilat Echa, is that Migilat Echa, and we said this over and over in our study of the Migilah, is an eyewitness account. Even if it's not the same day, even if it's not a week later, it's a month later, it's several months later, it's as Am Yisrael is still experiencing the devastation, they're still looking around and trying to absorb the terrible sights, the terrible results, the aftermath of the, of the Chorban, uh, physically, theologically, emotionally, uh, economically, in terms of leadership, in every way they're sort of, uh, they're still disoriented, they're dazed, they're sort of, uh, flailing around trying to cope with the enormity of what has happened. Um, and the Midrash has the ability to be a little bit more objective. Now, again, they are dealing with a korban of their own, with their own destruction, but they're not writing the Midrash of Echaraba in 70, and they're not writing it in 71. They're writing it over the course of many years, over the course of several generations. As I said, this book is not completed until 500 CE. The Midrashim were written over the course of this period, and therefore they have the ability to have a little bit of distance. Perhaps a good analogy would be the question as to which scientific, objective, um, academic works on the Holocaust were written in 1945. How many were written in 1946? How many were written in 1950? At what point was um, academia able to introduce into their universities uh, the the discipline of Holocaust studies, a course on Holocaust studies? This is all a question of of ha- at what point we're able to look at things objectively. And that's the first thing I wanted to say about Echaraba. Uh, the other thing that I want to say about Echaraba is that Chazal have tremendous creative license. And this I alluded to previously. Um, because Chazal's main goal is not necessarily to explain the text, but to be a pedagogue, to be pedagogues, to be teachers. And what they're trying to do is to... Um, offer to Am Yisrael, to their constituents, whatever messages they feel that Am Yisrael needs at the time. And that means that they have creative license. That means, and this we see throughout Chazal, that means that often they stray from the simple meaning of a text, of a verse, of uh, explaining the etymology of someone's name, uh, of all sorts of of, of ways that they uh, attempt to explain things, they can stray from the simple meaning in order to provide us with a more profound theological message because Chazal primarily, more than anything else, are teachers. They are pedagogues par excellence. And so here, one of the astounding things that I want to point out in Midrash Echarabah is that Chazal allow themselves not just to be creative with the text, but I would say even to wreak absolute havoc with the text so that they turn the text on its head and say something exactly the opposite of what the text actually meant. So I'll give you uh, perhaps one very salient example, although I must say that I have noted down at least six examples of a very similar phenomenon. The Midrash in Perak Aleph, Midrash 26, comments on the words Ein la Menachem, which we noted is the recurring phrase throughout chapter 1 of Migilat Echa. She, meaning Yerushalayim, has no comforters. The Midrash says something wonderful here. A 
Amar Rabbi Levi, Kol Makom Shneemar Ein Havala. Every place where it says there is none, there is. Eventually, there is. And then they bring several proof texts. So, for example, it says, Vatihi Sarai Akara, Ein Lavlad, Vehavala. Right? Sarai was barren. She had no offspring. And she does. She eventually does. And they bring another proof text. Ulechana Ein Yiladim, Vehavala. Chana didn't have children, but she also eventually has children. They bring another proof text and they say, Tzion hi doresh einla. She is Tzion. She has no one who seeks her. Vehavala. But we know that eventually there is going to be one to seek her because we have another pasuk that tells us, Uva litzion goel. A redeemer will come to Zion. And so the Midrash concludes and says, Afkan, here as well. You say there is no comforter. But we know that this means that there will be a comforter. And now they quote from the Pasuk in Isha'ah, which I quoted at the end of my last shiur. I, says God, I am your comforter. This is, I think, a wonderful um, example of Chazal's bold rereading of the text. And this, I think, is characteristic of the way in which Chazal approached Megillat Echa in general. It is not an attempt to try to explain the verse itself. Rather, it is an attempt to try to offer the kinds of messages through the text that they are trying to offer to their constituents. I want to talk today about three different ways in which Echa Rabbah offers a bold rereading of Megillat Echa. And here I want to talk about general themes and not about specific verses, not about specific words. Um, I want to say that, that Chazal throughout the reading of Megillat Echa are really trying to reverse its pshat, its simple meaning, in order to provide to its constituents something which they felt was uh, left open in Megillat Echa, which represented some sort of dangerous theological vacancy. So the first thing I want to talk about is the problem of sin in Megillat Echa. Now, um, we've, we've discussed this in our study of Echa in general. Certainly, chapters 1 and 5 do offer a general sense of sinfulness. Chet chata Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim has surely sinned. Oy nalanu ki chatanu. Woe to us for we have sinned. There is still a problem from Chazal's perspective. When you simply take one step back from Megillat Echa, you sense that there isn't enough explanation. The explanation, the answer to the why or the how, Echa, is not not enough, it's not comprehensive, it's not penetrating, not one sin is actually named. Perhaps maybe the false prophets, maybe some sort of blood spilling in Yerushalayim, but both of those are attributed to the leaders. There's no sin of the common people named. There's not enough explanation or justification for the terrible events. This creates a dangerous theological vacancy. It leaves the people with a sense either that divine punishment is terrible, is disproportionate, perhaps even a result of divine malice, which we saw in chapter 3 that was uh, denied in chapter 3. God does not crush under his feet all of the prisoners of the earth. It perhaps also leaves people with the possibility of thinking that what has occurred is divine 
abandonment, which is, of course, the theological basis for Christianity, that God has rejected his people. Therefore, he no longer owes them an explanation. There is no longer a covenant between God and his people, and now he turns to find a new people. This is a very dangerous theological vacancy. This is what the people could conclude after reading Megillat Echa. And of course, Chazal are trying to get the people to re- read Megillat Echa and to emerge with the correct theological messages, which enable them to assume their uh, natural place in this world with God as uh, the the partner in their in their covenant, right, as, as, as with some sort of covenantal relationship with God. Chazal therefore do two things, only one of which I'm really going to be able to get to today. The first thing that they do is they spend a lot of time cataloging Am Yisrael's specific sins. Um, they do this in order to fill the gap that's created by Echa, in which no specific sins are mentioned. The other thing that they do, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment, the other thing that they do is that they create elaborate stories of Am Yisrael's sinfulness where we get a sense of the penetrating nature of Am Yisrael's sins, of the depths of their depravity, of the comprehensiveness of their sins. You read these stories and you emerge with a sense of Oh, now I understand. It's not because God was being disproportionate or malicious or uh, even perhaps abandoning them, but rather it's because they really needed a total upheaval. This is the sense that's created in Megillat Echa. Once again, I say, say this with a certain amount of caution. We are cautious when we try to apply reasons to national suffering, but this is, I think, certainly something that uh, a theme that runs throughout out the Midrash. If you read the Midrash, you see that the phrase which we see over and over is Kevan Shechatu Galu, the Kevan Shegalu, Hitchil Yermiyahu Mekonene Echa. Because of their sins, they were exiled, and once they were exiled, Yermiyahu began to lament them and say Echa. Now, um, I'm just going to give you a sense. I, I, I just sort of reviewed Echa Rabbah Perak Aleph. Just the first chapter of Echaraba, and I jotted down the, uh, uh, the catalog of sins. I'm going to give you just a sense of the comprehensive nature of the catalog sins. So a brief list includes, they worshipped idols, they didn't listen to prophets, they had no righteous people in their midst, they did not do mitzvot, they didn't do good deeds, they didn't pay their teachers. I like that one. They left the Torah, they spilled innocent blood, they stopped bringing the sacrifices, they were cruel to the Gentiles, they took advantage of poor people, they stopped um, uh, learning Torah, they profaned the name of God, they uh, profaned the Beit HaMikdash, they stopped keeping Shabbat, they stopped keeping Yom Kippur, they were arrogant, there were false prophets, they denied the oneness of God, they denied the validity of the Ten Commandments, they denied the Chamisha Chumshei Torah, the five books of the Pentateuch. They stopped doing Brit Milah. I think you're beginning to get a sense. I'm only halfway down this list. They stopped keeping the covenant at Sinai. They were joyous at the downfall of their fellow man. They didn't turn to God in repentance. They ate chametz on Pesach. They stole the gift, the, the, um, the poor person's miser. They, they ate the, the miser of the poor person. They, uh, hated each other needlessly. They shirked the burden of, um, of, of mitzvot. And a recurring theme throughout the section is very interesting. Slothfulness in 
in, in studying Torah, which I mentioned previously as well. Before I get to that, which I'm going to read to you explicit, specifically, I'm going to read it to you from the Midrash, I just want you to get a sense of how comprehensive the description of the sinning is. Um, and the idea here, I think, is, is that Chazal are trying to say, there was just a whole composite picture of a whole nation that had simply given up on the covenant. And that at least gives you a sense as to why it was necessary to have this upheaval to destroy the Beit HaMikdash, to send the people into exile. But it doesn't mean the breaking of the covenant between them and God. And this point is going to be made uh, in the very famous story of Rabbi Akiva, the story that we know from the end of the Gemara in Makot, from the 24th page of the Gemara in Makot, the very end of the Masechet. But the story also appears in Echarabah, in 518 of Echaraba. And here the story tells us that Rabbi Akiva is walking with his friends and his friends see Yerushalayim and they see the desolation, they see the Beit HaMikdash, they see the ruins, they see that foxes are are uh, frequenting these ruins and they begin to cry. And of course Rabbi Akiva laughs. And when the friends ask Rabbi Akiva why he's laughing, he offers the following explanation. He says, well, you know, um, we have prophecies of destruction and we have prophecies of comfort. And now that the prophecies of destruction have, in fact, taken place, I am convinced that, in fact, the prophecies of comfort will take place as well. In other words, and of course they respond, Akiva nichamtanu, Akiva nichamtanu, you have comforted us, Rabbi Akiva. And the idea that Rabbi Akiva is trying to suggest here is that this destruction and the sinfulness and the punishment is part of a larger composite picture. And the picture is the picture of the covenantal relationship between God and his people. And therefore, the punishment, uh, the, the destruction must be viewed as punishment for the people's sins. In other words, it is meaningful within the traditional concept of God's relationship with Am Yisrael, within the context of the covenantal relationship, and therefore, it's not divine abandonment. Now, um, this is conveyed by the comprehensive list of sins. As I mentioned, it's also conveyed by the specific sins, which we're not going to have time to go into right now. I'll just mention for anyone who wants to see some of these extraordinary stories of Am Yisrael's, uh, the penetrating na- nature of their sinfulness, the depths of their uh, depravity, you can look in chapter 1, Midrash 36. You can look in chapter 4, Midrash 18. Obviously, the point here is not to heap abuse on the battered, already battered people, but rather to support the theological contention that this is um, there, this is uh, a viable um, aspect of their covenant with God. Um, I just do want to go back to this this midrash on their slothfulness in learning Torah, which is a recurring theme in Echarabah. I'll read you this midrash from the first chapter, from midrash thirty three. Hayah A man would say to his friend in Yerushalayim, Hakreni dafichad, read for me one page. Omer lo, and he responds to him, in bikoch, I have no strength. Hashneini perakechad, learn for me, learn with me, one chapter. Omer lo, in bikoch, and he responds, I have no strength. Amar lahem hakadosh baruchu, God turned to them and said, tavo lachem sha'ah, an hour will come upon you, va'ani osel lachem kach, and I'm going to do this to you. Va'yelchu vilokoach, Lifnei Rodef. You will have to walk without strength before the enemy. In other words, because you didn't have strength to learn Torah, so therefore you are now going to, in fact, 
be fatigued in a different context altogether, and that is in running away from the enemy. Now, Talmud Torah occupies an important place in the reason for the destruction, in my opinion, because it it, it, it will occupy an important place in the hope for redemption. Um, the idea is is that we can't focus too much on Am Yisrael's violation, their profanation of the Beit HaMikdash as the reason for sinfulness, because that, in fact, does not offer us hope for rehabilitation, hope for redefining the community as a covenantal community. The Beit HaMikdash is destroyed, and it's it's anyone's guess when it will be rebuilt again. And so the Midrash instead focuses on something which has real beneficial, constructive, a real beneficial and constructive message for Am Yisrael, and that is Talmud Torah. If the reason for the destruction is because they were lazy, they were slothful in learning Torah, well, the solution for this is very much in the hands of the people, no matter where they are. And of course, this will ultimately be the secret of the survival of Am Yisrael in the diaspora. No matter where they are, they can fix that problem. They can rededicate themselves with renewed fervor to the study of Torah, and in doing so, they can turn the tide of this terrible destruction into a period of redemption, into a movement back towards their covenantal relationship with God. So this is the first topic that I wanted to point out that the Midrash focuses on and their attempt to turn around the meaning of Megillat Echa, or, or, or certainly to fill, I would, I would more call this filling a vacancy, a vacuum, which is created by Megillat Echa. The second point that I want to make about Midrash Echa Rabbah, I think is even more, um, uh, more poignant, and that is that Echa is a problem, leaves us with a, a very important problem. And the problem is the question of God's role. Where is God in Megillat Echa? Where is his voice? What is his role? Um, the, the problem really is, is that while his absence in certain chapters is felt, perhaps particularly in chapter three, um, even worse, if you, if you regard, if you see God's role, particularly in chapter two, but in other chapters as well, God emerges as the enemy the one who imposes suffering on man, even if deserved. This is a very difficult concept for Chazal to promote and to give over to their constituents. In fact, if they're trying to lead their constituents towards reconciliation with God, then the image of God has to be perhaps um, uh, mitigated or softened or even, in fact, changed. If in Echa, God is an enemy of Am Yisrael, or certainly the punitive God, the God who is punishing Am Yisrael in Echaraba, God is not only not the enemy, he is the primary victim. Uh, this, 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 uh, is really the, the dominant image of God throughout Echaraba. Um, not that it's the exclusive image, but certainly it's a dominant image. I'll read for you one example and I'll give you the sources for other examples. So for example, in the Ptichta, in one of the introductory 
um, uh, midrashim in Echa Rabbah that leads us into the reading of Echa in the 24th Ptichta, which is, it, it appears before chapter 1 in the printed uh, editions, where we have an, an amazing description of God. I'm going to read it for you because it will lose its power if I just translate it into English. Amar lahen hakadosh baruchul malachei asharet. God turned to his angels and he said to them, Bo Let us go, you and I, and we will go and see my house and see what the enemies have done with it. Immediately, God, his angels, and Yirmiyahu went. And when God saw the temple, Amar, Indeed, this is my house, this is my resting place, that the enemies came and did with it what they pleased. At that same moment, God cried, and he said, Oili al-Beiti, woe to me over my house. Banai hechanatem, koanai hechanatem, ohavai hechanatem. My sons, where are you? My priests, where are you? My beloveds, where are you? Ma'eselachem, what can I do for you? What can I do to you? I warned you and you did not return in repentance. This is the most powerful line of all. God turns to Yermiao and says, I am likened today I am likened today to a man who had one son and he made for him a wedding canopy and that son died inside the wedding canopy. This is, I think, it really sums it up, this Midrash. It's one of the, the most powerful Midrashim that I know of. Um, and, and here God is not the enemy. He's the victim. God cries. God mourns. God is left with an empty wedding canopy. God is bereft of his Beit HaMikdash. He's bereft of his house. He's bereft of his priest. He's bereft of his beloved firstborn. He is bereft of his future, right? And this leads us to other Midrashim. Midrashim, for example, the Petichta, the 20th Petichta, the 20th introductory poem in Echarabah, which describes God all alone, standing um, on the roof of the Beit HaMikdash, it's based on the Pasuk in Tehillim, and saying the words, Echa Yashva Vadad. But he's speaking the words about himself, who in fact is the lonely one in that Midrash. It is not Yerushalayim, it is not Am Yisrael, it is God. And God's loneliness is what characterizes um, the portrayal of God in Echa Rabah. God is the victim, not the enemy. This image of God the victim is another indication of the extraordinary freedom and creativity of Chazal, which they implement throughout their Midrashic explication of the book of Echa, which essentially reverses the meaning of the book. God is transformed from the enforcer of punishment to the dazed sufferer. And if this, in fact, is true, this 
provides a certain amount of comfort for Am Yisrael. God becomes empathetic. God is on their side. He suffers alongside of them. And this, of course, is uh, 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 both a, a way for them to reconcile with God, but at the same time, it's, it leaves them with a certain hope. If God is suffering as well, there is no doubt that this uh, whole whole situation will be reversed. And in fact, this leads me to one other Midrash, which which also comes to mind in this regard, and that is a Midrash in the 34th Petichta, in which God goes into exile with them. This, of course, is based on a description in Yechezkel, in the 10th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, and there the Shechina leaves Yerushalayim. And again, I mean, I think that the idea is is that not only does God suffer alongside of them, he actually accompanies them into Galut. And this idea is made explicitly in, in um, the 34th Petichta of Echarabah. So this is, I think, the second way in which the Chazal in Echarabah offer a bold and transforming message to Am Yisrael. They transform the Megillah in, in order to enable it to offer comfort to Am Yisrael. Now, in Echarabah as well, there are certain stories um, uh, that are not necessarily based on the psukim themselves. Uh, the third thing that I want to talk about is the way in which Midrash Echarabah offers comfort and rehabilitation. Um, Echa, as we noted, has no comfort. It is dominated by despair, by suffering. And Echa Rabat consciously tries to restore hope and offer a lifeline to the floundering people who are suffocating, who are drowning in their own pain. Chazal do this in various and sundry ways, some of which we've already seen in this shiur. I'm going to talk about three different ways, not all of which we're going to be able to see inside, but I'll mention them in any case. Uh, the first way that I want... I want us to understand. I mean, I think that the, the basic underlying idea here is that Chazal are trying to restore to the people their dignity. They're restoring their sense of self. They're restoring their sense of peoplehood, despite the fact that they are now uh, in the diaspora, that they're now looking at a long period in which they're going to be in the diaspora. And Chazal already sensed, and we're going to see in a moment, how how deeply Chazal sensed that this period is going to last for a long time. Um, but Chazal want to give the people a certain lifeline. And in in um, trying to restore the people's dignity, what they do is they remind them of their past and they remind them of the specific character traits that provide them with dignity. Now, in reminding them of their past, Chazal do some very interesting and even entertaining things. And I will mention that Echarabah is an, it's a very entertaining book. It was when, uh, when Chazal say that we can read Echarabah on Tisha B'Av, I always, uh, feel a little bit that that is less appropriate, certainly, than reading Echa. While, of course, the subject matter is the Chorban, is the destruction, it's an entertaining book. It's a uh, hopeful book. It's dominated not by despair, but rather by, um, by by hope, by reconciliation, by rehabilitation. Um, one way in which Chazal do this is by utilizing a certain um, a certain idea that appears several times in Echa, and this is the contrast between the past and the present. Right? This is what we have right away in Pasuk Alf. Echa yashva vadad ha'ir am. How has this city sat lonely? The city that was once so filled with people. Rabati bagoyim, sarati bamidinot haitam. Right, the city that was once the prince of states 
uh, that was once the greatest of all of the different uh, amongst the Gentiles now has become uh, a city that has to pay taxes. Now, um, this medium is it also appears in chapter four, and I mentioned it, I believe, when we learned chapter four. Um, but in the Megillah itself, it's utilized in order to deepen the sense of pain that is felt. The Midrash takes this medium and twists a little bit and says, not that you should remember your past in order to show how miserable your present is, but rather to recall your great past, to recall the dignity, the honor, the glory that once was ours. And instead, therefore, of all the time wallowing in our terribly shocking fall from glory, we are recalling what we once were. And it's almost as though we're preserving this lifeline to the past, which enables us to preserve our dignity, with the message obviously being, as soon as this terrible period is over, we will return once again to our glorious past. So, for example, Chazal, on the words Rabati Am, um, asked the question, the uh, sort of obvious Chazal question, how many people did live in Yerushalayim prior to the Chorban, prior to the destruction? And they have this whole elaborate mathematical description. There were 24 sections in Yerushalayim. And in each section, there were 24 uh, districts. And in each, each district, there were 24 marketplaces. And in each marketplace, there were 24 um, uh, courtyards. And in each courtyard, there was double the number of Jews who left Egypt. Now, if you do the math, and um, and uh, it has been done, the math, it comes out to the inhabitants of Yerushalayim were nine and a half trillion people lived in Yerushalayim prior to the Chorban. Obviously, this is an exaggeration. The Chazal here, again, they're utilizing this medium of comparing the past and the present, and at the same time, this idea of exaggeration in order to remind Am Yisrael what Yerushalayim really was. It was filled, it was teeming, it was bustling with people, with pilgrims, with with um, with Jews, with non-Jews, with everybody who wanted to be at the center of, of the universe, who wanted to be in Yerushalayim. And by doing this, Chazal are throwing the people a lifeline. And this is one of the ways in which Chazal remind the people of their dignity. Now, I will mention a series of stories which appears in the first chapter of Echa Rabah, stories in which Am Yisrael goes head-to-head with their uh, Gentile counterparts and in which their cleverness trumps the power, the brutality, and the riches of the enemy. This is uh, a way in which Chazal tell Am Yisrael that one thing that one, no one can ever take from you are your, is your cleverness. Um, an idea perhaps that is uh, perhaps not politically correct, but certainly one in which Chazal show that they're willing to go to uh, great lengths in order to help Am Yisrael, in order to give Am Yisrael the dignity and the um, strength to continue despite their downtrodden situation in the diaspora. Now, the last Midrash that I want to mention in this regard, it's the last Midrash of our Share today, and actually it concludes our series on Migilat Echa. It's an extremely powerful midrash, and it's a midrash in which Am Yisrael, in which uh, Chazal are offering Am Yisrael uh, 
uh, perhaps the secret of their continuity, of their survival during the long period that lies ahead in the diaspora. Um, as noted previously, in Echaraba, in an attempt to find uh, a way, a means of rehabilitation and um, and restitution, Am Yisrael is told over and over in different ways that they can continue to learn Torah wherever they are, and that this is almost almost can be a replacement for their former way of life, which had worship in the temple at its center. This is, of course, the story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who asks of the emperor for Yavne v'chachameha, right? He wants a place for people to continue learning Torah. And this is the formula that he regards as the most important formula for continuing Am Yisrael after the destruction. This request echoes throughout Jewish history, especially perhaps diaspora history, as Am Yisrael builds their identity around this activity, which lends them purpose, dignity, and an ability to maintain a relationship with God, not based on any spatial external need, not based on worship in the temple. And so I end with this final Midrash. The Midrash is based on the words in Paragimel in Echa, Zot Ashiv El Libi Al This I will think about, therefore I will have hope. I cannot read for you the entire Midrash, but I'll um, I'll, I'll summarize it. The Midrash appears in Paragimel in the third chapter of Echaraba. It's Midrash number seven. And the Midrash says, This is a parable. A parable to a king who marries a woman and he writes for her a great ketuvah. The ketuvah tells her that in case of death or divorce, he will provide her with a tremendous amount of money, with a tremendous amount of material wealth. And this is because, of course, he never intends to divorce her because of his great love for her. And also, in in case of death, he wants to give her all of his worldly goods. Um, Now, at this point, the king goes off on some journey to... uh, a faraway land, and he becomes delayed there. And the woman's uh, neighbors come in, and they begin to mock her and to say to her, the king has left you, he's gone to a faraway land, and he's never coming home. And she would cry and moan, but then she would go into her house, and she would open the ketuvah that the king wrote for her, and she would read it, and she would see of his great love for her as it was ex- expressed in his um, in his commitment never to divorce her, and in case of death, to give her all of her, his material goods, and immediately she would become comforted. Eventually, after many years, the king came home and he turned to her and he said, I am amazed by you. How did you wait for me for all these years? How did you remain committed to me and loyal for all these years that I was gone? And she said to him, Adoni HaMelech, Il Malek Tuva Miruba Shekatavta Venatatali Kvar Ibduni Shechinotai Were it not for that great Ketuva that you wrote for me, my neighbors would have already caused me to lose hope. And the Nimshal is also brought in this Midrash. The Nimshal says, Kach ovdei kochavim moninet Israel. So too, and the ovdei kochavim here, I believe, um, 
is perhaps a reference to Christian theology, so too have um, have have others mocked Israel, and they say to, they say to Israel, "Your God has hidden His face from you, and He has taken away divine presence from you, and He is never going to return to you." And they, Am Yisrael, they cry and they moan. But look at what the what the midrash says: "V'kivan shenichnasin lebatei knesiot ulevatei midrashot v'korin b'Torah." But when they go into their shuls, when they go into their batei midrash and they read the Torah and they see what is written there: "Ufaniti alechem v'hifreiti etchem v'natati mishkeni b'tochacham." They see the words of the tochacha, the promises of God. If you will be good, I will give you all these things, and I will walk in your midst, they are immediately comforted. And the Midrash concludes, and this will be the concluding words of our series on Megillat Echa and their hopeful words. While this is perhaps incongruous for Megillat Echa, these words are not at all incongruous for Echa Rabah, for the Midrashic reading of the Megillah, and they're also appropriate for this period of Nechama in which we find ourselves. The Midrash concludes by saying, Limachar, Tomorrow, Kshayavo when the time for redemption will come, Omer Lahem Hakadosh Barachul Israel, God will say to Am Israel, Banai, Ani Tameamikem, my sons, I am amazed by you, my children, I am amazed by you. Hashanim, how did you wait for me for all these years? Two thousand years of exile, of diaspora, of subservience, of, of wandering from country to country, of terrible persecutions, and you still remain loyal and committed to me. The Hainomrim Lefanav, and they say to him, Ribono shel Olam, Ilulei Toratchashanatatalanu, Kvar Ibdunu Haumot. Were it not for the great Torah that you gave us, the nations would have already caused us to lose hope. Lachene Emar, Zot Ashiv Elibi. Therefore it says, This I will think about, and I will have hope. Ein Zot Ela Torah. Torah is what we think about, and that is what gives us hope. And I wish you all brachot for continuing Talmud Torah in the hopes that it will bring us Geulah Shlema, the full redemption and nechama and comfort and reconciliation with God.